God's heart is for his people to live in harmony with one another. We see that in the use of the one another statements in the Bible. This phrase occurs 100 times in the New Testament, making up 59 specific commands. We're in week two of our series called One Another, as we look at five of these exhortations. Care for one another, be united with one another, accept one another, carry each other's burdens, bear with one another. Last week, we established the importance of caring for one another. Your contribution to the kingdom is unique and your role is essential. Having said that, we must guard against thinking we are more special than those around us. Instead of believing we are prominent and everyone else is a poor imitation, we must realize we're all different. But different doesn't mean deformed because we all need each other. God has designed us to be mutually dependent upon each other. Welcome to On Mission, the preaching ministry of Edgewood Baptist Church in Rock Island. When we gather together, we meet on 38th Street. And when we're scattered, we strive to live on mission all over the Quad Cities area. Listen now to part one of a message called, Be United with One Another. One weekend, a pastor was giving a children's sermon to all the kids in church. A bright-eyed three-year-old girl was listening intently as he explained how God wanted them all to get along and to love one another. She was tracking with her pastor until he said these words, God wants us all to be one. The little girl stood up and loudly protested, but I don't want to be one. I want to be four. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, this girl might be speaking for many of us who don't want to be one either. See, it's much easier to splinter into four groups or 40 groups or or 400 groups or even 4,000 different groups. Now, it's difficult to get an exact count because the numbers keep going up. But there are thousands of different denominations and religious groups in the United States alone. Because we're going through a few of the one another statements in our sermon series, I decided to sit down one morning and write down all the one another's, but I ran out of room. You see, this phrase occurs 100 times in the New Testament, making up 59 specific commands. Last weekend, we handed out puzzle pieces to help establish this truth, that God has placed you to live out your purpose in this place all for his pleasure. And today, we're going to consider how we can be united with one another. We're going to begin with a survey of some verses. We'll start in the Old Testament, and then we'll work our way to the New Testament. I'll put them up on the screen, and when I come to the phrase that's underlined, if you could say that part of the verse with me. Judges chapter 20, verse 11. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Psalm 133, verse 1, behold, how good 
and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Jeremiah 32, 38 and 39, you see, you've sensed God's heart here. He says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. New Testament, words of Jesus, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Romans 15, 5 and 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, written to a church filled with problems and division Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't know if he's going to be able to visit that church. So he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2.2, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And 1 Peter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me ask some questions to help us engage and enter in to these moments. How are you doing in your quest for unity within the community of faith? Would you say Edgewood is united as one person so we can with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And are we living together with unity of mind and singleness of heart so that we can go with the gospel message. These are tough questions to answer, aren't they? Because left to ourselves, we don't automatically drift toward unity. In fact, our default setting is disunity. History is littered with a lack of harmony among humans. Now, the good news is we're not the first group of believers to display dissonance. Even the disciples who spent three years with Jesus demonstrated more discord than accord. Think of James and John. They caused jealousy and envy among the other disciples when they were positioning themselves, one to sit on the right and one on the left hand of Jesus. And unbelievably, 
right after Jesus celebrated his last meal with the disciples. We know it as the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal. While the disciples are still reclining at the table, Luke 22, verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you kidding? After Jesus washed their dirty and smelly feet and dried their feet, he's just about to offer himself as their sin substitute. All they can think about is which one of them was the greatest. In fact, their selfishness led to a dispute. That word means strife, faction, dissension. More literally, it means a love of contention. Do you know anybody like that? They just seem to love to go at it. Don't look at the person next to you. It'll become very uncomfortable, right? So here's the disciples. They're divided. On the very night, Jesus was preparing to deliver his life for them. So in those final moments before his arrest, Jesus could have prayed for his own strength. He could have requested that the 11 would support him. His intercession to the Father could have been filled with the desire to make the disciples better teachers, better leaders, better servants, better givers. Uh, That's not what he prayed. Instead, his prayer was dominated by a single thought. Jesus wanted them to be a community of unity. Open your Bibles to John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said. This really is the true Lord's Prayer. The other prayer we refer to as the Lord's Prayer might be better named the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus gave it to them when they asked how to pray. This is the longest prayer of Jesus. This prayer is saturated with urgency. We can hear the agonized intensity as Jesus pleads with his Father to make his followers one. In fact, we'll see that he pleads for unity four different times. The word that is used 19 times. That's a purpose clause, often translated this way, so that, to indicate Jesus has a purpose behind his prayer. He is praying so that his followers become united with him and with each other. Next, his prayer was prayed aloud for the disciples' benefit. His followers couldn't help but be moved and convicted about their own disregard for unity as they're hearing Jesus pour out his heart to the Father. Last thing I wrote down is we need supernatural strength to be united with fellow followers of Jesus. If the early Christians struggled to maintain unity, and you and I do as well, well, it's obvious we need God's help in this area. The very fact Jesus prayed for unity indicates uh, this is something you and I can't accomplish on our own. 
I see some themes in his prayer. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that he would be glorified. 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples, that they'd be sanctified. And verses 20 to 26, he prays for future followers. He's praying for us. And what is he praying? He's praying that we would be united. Jesus is praying for us to be a community of unity. I put that in the present tense on purpose. Because Hebrews 7.25 says this, Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know right now Jesus is praying for you? He's interceding for you. Drop down to John 17.11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's referring to his disciples. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus knows he's leaving his disciples behind in a very bombastic world. He can foresee upcoming temptations. He can see the persecution they're going to face. He knows how the deceiver will work to divide the disciples. So what does he do? He prays for their unity. Observe, he calls him, calls God Holy Father indicating that the Father is far above the wickedness of the world. We sang about that just a few minutes ago. Holy, holy, holy. The Father's name stands for all his resources, all of his power, all of his abilities. So Jesus is asking his Father to stand guard over those who've put their faith in him by unleashing an arsenal of protective oversight. Satan's strategy throughout church history has been to destroy unity within the body of Christ. So think of it this way. If he can destroy our oneness, our power will be diffused, will get discouraged, and our message will be destroyed. This protection Jesus prays for his disciples has a purpose in mind, that they may be one, even as we are one. In the original, it's even more forceful. The meaning is this, so that they may be constantly one. Not once in a while. Or we could read it this way, that they may keep on being one. Look at verse 20. This request is amplified when Jesus expands his intercession to include you and me. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I love that. Belief comes through the hearing of the message, just as it always has. The disciples were faithful in spreading the word, and the gospel has gone down generation by generation. Millions have come to Christ in every generation all over the globe, and that comes down right to us today. Robert McShane once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. 
I'd like you to close your eyes. And I want to want you to picture Jesus praying for you. And I'm going to read verses 21 to 23. I'm going to actually read his prayer for you, words of Jesus, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. God, how humbling to know that Jesus continues to pray for us. And now as we take a closer look at this passage, thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher. Help us to understand, interpret correctly, and then to engage our wills that we might put into practice what you have for us today. Lord, while we're praying here, we think of our persecuted brothers and sisters in hard places all over the globe today. We pray that they would be faithful, they'd be firm in their faith, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you observe, this request for oneness is made with increasing intensity in each verse. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become, listen to this word, perfectly one. Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity. That would mean everyone's the same. He doesn't pray for unanimity. He doesn't pray for absolute agreement of opinion. He doesn't pray for union. That's absolute affiliation. He prays for unity. That's oneness of faith and heart and purpose. Well, let's ponder five principles that come right from this prayer. Number one, the parameters of oneness include all believers. Jesus doesn't want us just to get along with a few people. Observe, he said, that they may all be one. It's not just us four and no more. True believers are one no matter what name is on the church sign. We are redeemed by the same blood, and if you're born again, you're going to the same heaven. That means we share a common unity or community with believers in the past, in the present, and in the future. Here in our community, in our counties, in our country, and with believers on the continents. You know, before I baptize someone, I often say words like this, especially if the person is nervous, and most everybody when they're baptized is nervous. I was as a 19-year-old for sure. I say something like this. Imagine all the people that have been baptized since Jesus was baptized. Just imagine the millions upon millions of people from then up until now. And you are standing in a long line of faithful followers of Jesus being obedient to his command. And then I say something like this. Imagine 
all the believers who are being baptized right now, this weekend, the same time that you are being baptized. You're one with them. You'll hear more about this later, but our next baptism services are March 13th and 14th. That's next weekend. Let me add a couple cautions to this first point. Let's avoid extreme separatism. Some believers refuse to acknowledge that there are Christians in other churches. Some groups criticize and label people just because they don't hold to the same identical outward standards as they do. That's caution number one. Caution number two, avoid ecumenical sloppiness. The push for ecumenical uniformity among churches should also be avoided. Here's why. There are doctrinal differences. And there are biblical distinctives which must be maintained. Earlier in this same prayer, look at verse 17. Jesus said, said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So truth alone must determine our alignments. Why? Because frankly, we're not all headed in the same direction. We do not all serve the same God. Only those who are born again are our brothers and sisters in the faith. And sadly, many churches have pursued ecumenical union at the expense of biblical truth. In the 1970s, the struggle was for biblical inerrancy. Today, the debate seems to be centered more on the authority of Scripture, or we could say it this way, on the sufficiency of Scripture. So here's a question we need to ask and answer as a church, but you need to ask and answer it in your homes, on your campuses, in your workplaces, in the community. Will we hold to the authority of Scripture as it relates to biblical creationism, gender, sexuality, the definition of marriage, and the exclusivity of Christ. What will we do, what will you do, when cancel culture leads to the canceling of Christians because we believe the Bible? I don't know if you saw this week or heard this. There was a debate in Congress this week about the Equality Act. And one brave congressman stood up and started reading from the Bible. Did you see that? Started reading from the Bible. Well, in response, another congressman made this very unsettling comment, and I quote, What any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this congress. So listen, on a related note, Josh Mulvihill, who spoke here at our grandparents' conference, he made this tweet this week. You ponder this and see if it resonates. Many young people are not on a truth quest, but on a happiness quest. We must convince young people that they will be happiest when they live according to God's truth found in the Bible. Happiness is found in holiness, not apart from it. 
Several weeks ago, Pastor Brian led in a prayer at a community prayer event. When he got up, he said, It's great to see so many churches represented here, but actually there is just one church here. If you're a born-again believer, you and I are part of the same church, and we are united with Christ and with one another. Are you doing what it takes to be a uniter? Or do you find yourself pulling away from believers who are different than you are? Thanks for joining us for On Mission. If you'd like to hear more sermons like this one, or want to learn more about the ministry of Edgewood, go to edgewoodbaptist.net or download our free mobile app on the Apple App Store or Google Play by searching for Edgewood QC. We'd love to have you as a guest at one of our three weekend services, Saturday at 5 or Sunday at 9 or 1045. My name is Matt Williams and I'm a member of Edgewood. Ethan Curry, also an Edgewood member, is serving as the producer of this program. We look forward to connecting with you again next weekend as we learn more about how to live on mission. Until then, go deep in God's Word and keep applying it to your world. On Mission is furnished by Edgewood Baptist in Rock Island, Illinois.